Let me tell you a story about uh, one of our members, one of our older ladies. Uh, this was about, uh, about three or four months ago. I don't remember exactly. It was before we started this series. I knew we were going to talk about the Lord's Prayer, but we hadn't jumped into it yet. And she caught me on a, a Wednesday night, and she said, Hey, I need to ask you something. I had a strange experience. I said, Okay. So she kind of pulled me over to the side. She said, I had a, a Catholic friend pass away. And so the funeral was at a Catholic church. And I went to the service uh, in this Catholic church. How many of you have been to a funeral in a Catholic church? Okay, so different than how we typically do a funeral. Is that fair? Just we'll leave it at different. Um, So she goes to this funeral and she says, you know, for an, an older lady, this was the first Catholic funeral that she had been to. And so one of the things she wanted to tell me was just how different it was. It was so strange. They did this, and then they did this, and why did they do this? And I said, yeah, it's very, very different. And uh, one side of my family is Catholic, and so I've been to uh, plenty of those types of services. And so we talked about that stuff. She said, here's what I really want to ask you about. She said, all these things they're doing, I have no idea what's going on. I mean, I'm totally lost. But then they start saying the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Catholic tradition, sometimes it's called an Our Father. Think about saying Hail Marys and saying Our Fathers. So she says they start saying the Lord's Prayer. And she said it was almost like a breath of fresh air because everything going on seemed so different and foreign to me. And then all of a sudden they started saying something that I knew. And I felt, ah, I can, I can join in on this part. I can say the Lord's Prayer. I like, we like the Lord's Prayer. We say the Lord's Prayer. And so they started saying the Lord's Prayer, and they got to the end, and they stopped one line early for her taste. And they didn't say the last phrase. They ended with, deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. And so her question to me is, what is going on in the Catholic Church that they are changing things like the Lord's Prayer? I know they, you know, they think they have... Uh, the key or the the corner on knowledge, but why are they messing with the Bible and changing the Lord's Prayer? And it's a very good observation, right? For somebody who's not familiar with that sort of service, you sit in that service and something all of a sudden triggers in your brain and you say, ah, I know this. I know the Lord's Prayer. And they get to the end and they don't say part of it. It's a good question uh, in one respect to say, why did they change it from what I know Um, it's not so much actually that they changed it. There's a textual question here, and we're just going to try to deal with it. And some of you may know all this that we're going to talk about tonight, and some of you may have never heard it before. Um, If you have questions, follow-up questions, there's no way I can possibly talk about all the things I want to talk about tonight. In fact, when I sat down with Hunter this week, Hunter teaches the same studies with the youth. And so I kind of work up a a general outline, and then I give it to him, and we talk about it. I sat down with Hunter, and I said, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if if I got everything in that needs to be in or if I took everything out that needs to be out. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I've been working on this one for a couple weeks. And I said, I work, and I work, and I get a couple of pages of stuff, and then I say, that's just rabbit trail. 
get back on the main path, cut the rabbit trail off. And so I'd delete three pages. And then I'd get a paragraph or two, and I, I wrestle with it. And then I'd type another couple pages, and I'd zero those pages out. And I keep going back and forth. So uh, as we talk about this, if there's things that aren't clear or things that, that you're curious about, uh, please visit with me. We're just going to jump in and talk about what is the actual debate. We've wrestled with it each week. I told you we would talk about it at the end, so here's the debate. Protestant Bible translations handle this phrase, the last phrase of the Lord's Prayer, differently. I'm just going to give you a few examples, uh, major translations. I'm, I'm guessing that the translations I've listed cover most of us in the room. So we'll start with the New Living Translation the New International Version, and the English Standard Version, which is what we put in the, in the seats. These three translations omit the last phrase from the text. They don't include it in the main body of the text, but they include it in a footnote. Okay, So when you read up in the top, if you're not paying attention to all the little numbers and the footnotes and all that stuff, you may just look at it and say, ah, they don't have it. They do have it. They omit it from the text, but they include it down in the bottom in a footnote. And so I use the ESV. How many of you, your, your go-to Bible is one of those three translations? New Living, NIV, or ESV. So that's a pretty good cross-section of us right, right out of the gate. The King James Version and the New King James Version include it in the text. How many of you are King James, New King James? Old school. Look at you guys. Be proud. King James just puts it right in there. Okay? It's, it's not really uh, noted to be any different in most uh, of the editions of the King James or the New King James. It's just, it's included. And uh, sometimes you'll see, I'll just throw this out there, sometimes you'll see posts on Facebook where people say, the King James, it's the real Bible. All these new Bibles are cutting stuff out. Here's an example, and they give you a side-by-side, and they say, look, everybody else is just cutting what they don't like out of the Bible. That's not exactly what's going on, so don't share those posts or like those posts. Even if you like King James or New King James, that's fine. Just don't, don't like those posts. Block those people. You don't need to listen to those kind of people. Okay, uh, one more option here. The CSB, this used to be the, this is confusing, used to be the HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible. That sounded too Baptist because Holman is our publishing branch, so they wanted to sell more Bibles, so they cut the home and now it's just the CSB. But it's, it's a Southern Baptist translation, essentially, or the New American Standard. They include it in the text, but it's in italics, or there's a bracket around it. Does that make sense? It's not in a footnote. It's up there in the top, but they've, they've done something in the printing to catch your eye and to basically say, hey, there's something, something going on here. And we want to make you aware of that. So how many of you would be CSB or New American Standard? There you go, New American Standard. The real serious Bible study people use New American Standard. Okay, so how many of you, just, I want, I'm curious, one of those translations is your go-to? Did we cover what percentage of people? Most people in the room, maybe a few of you we left out. Here's the takeaway. All of those translations... Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All of those translations are good. If you like one of those translations, you don't need to get a new one. Just stick with what you like. Roll with it. And they're all very good 
conservative, Protestant, evangelical, sort of mainstream translations of the Bible. They're not wonky translations of the Bible. They're all translated by really, really smart people. Okay? You may look at the New Living Translation and you may say, yeah, but that's the one that kind of dumbs it down. It doesn't dumb it down. And the people that did the New Living Translation are really, really, really smart people. Okay? These are not dummies putting these together. This is not like me, Corey, and Hunter sitting in the office coming up with, well, what do you think we ought to go with here? I don't know. Like These are people who really, really know. Okay? And they disagree. And right out of the gate, that should just maybe give us a little bit of humility. Is that fair to say? Really, really smart people who love the Lord and believe the Bible is true, they disagree on how to handle this. And when they put these different translations together, they don't even all handle it the same. But there's, just, there's something going on here we've got to sort through. So here's what it is. The oldest manuscripts that we have do not include the words, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The oldest manuscripts don't have that phrase. So let's just think for a second about how we got the Bible. Okay. At some point, human beings sat down with pen and paper, and whether they wrote it themselves, uh, there's, there's evidence in different Old Testament books and New Testament books that maybe somebody would dictate and someone else would write down a book, but at some point, someone actually wrote Isaiah, right? Somebody actually sat down and wrote uh, Lamentations, Somebody actually sat down and wrote the Gospel of John. And somebody sat down and wrote the letter to the Philippians. All these books. And there it was on paper for the first time, the original. Right? And the biblical idea, the the orthodox traditional idea is that when those people wrote those books down, that they were inspired and, Peter says, carried along by the Holy Spirit, in such a way that what Paul wrote was Paul's words. Paul wrote like Paul. Paul didn't write like Isaiah. He wrote like Paul. But at the same time, it was God inspiring Paul to write those words. And those words were just as much God's words as they were Paul's words. And they were true. And they were without error and they're perfect, right? And you've got this original. But when all of these books were written, there is no kinkos. Okay? There's no Xerox. There's no Gutenberg printing press. There's no you know, movable type printing press where you can mass produce these suckers. So somebody took the original. And by the way, we don't have any of the originals. We do not have them. Okay? No originals. But somebody took the original and they sat down and they were a professional scribe. And their job, what they got paid to do for a living, and they were highly trained and highly skilled was to sit down with this and to copy it to this. And those guys did it with legal documents. They did it with you know, Roman pronouncements of law or policy change or whatever. But some of those guys were employed to do it with Scripture. And so they sat down and they started to make copies. What we have are copies. And we have some very, very old copies. I mean, it's, 
It is mind-boggling when you really dig into the weeds on this. This is some of the stuff I just chopped out of the lesson. But it is amazing how old some of the copies of the Old Testament we have. It is really amazing how old some of the New Testament copies we have are. Some of our New Testament manuscript copies, no lie, are old enough that they could be, we don't know, but they could be the very first copy from the original. We don't have the originals, but it could be that we're looking at something that a scribe copied from the actual original first edition of the Gospel of John or something like that. They're very, very old. But there's no printing press, okay? Uh, some people think the Chinese invented printing, and they say they did it like in the 900s or 1000 A.D. or something like that. They had their own system. Typically, we live in the West, so we don't give people in the East much credit for anything at all. We look for a Westerner who did something, and we say, Gutenberg. Gutenberg invented the printing press 1400s or so, right before the Reformation. And Gutenberg gets credit for the printing press, and then we start making uh, copies. But what we're dealing with originally is handwritten manuscripts, copies of copies or copies of the originals. So... Here's the thing about the King James Version, okay? Anybody know what year the King James Version was put together? 1611 was when it was published, 1611. It's over 400 years old. That's pretty old, right? 400-year-old Bible, version of the Bible. When King James commissioned this translation of the Bible, early 1600s, right, this is a man with power and wealth and influence and, and can get things done. He says, we're going to gather up all of the best manuscripts that we have. We're not going to translate from the Vulgate into English, the Latin Vulgate into English. That would be a translation of a translation. We're not going to do that. We're going to get the best Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament. We're going to get the best Greek, new manus- uh, Greek uh, manuscripts of the New Testament. And we're going to translate from the original languages into what we call Old English, what they called English, okay? And so they sat down, and they did it. And they, they had a great treasure of manuscripts, and they produced a very, very good translation. It has stood the test of time. It is still a good translation if you understand Old English and some of the words that are in Old English. For many younger readers, that's just very, very difficult, but it's still a good translation. Here's what you need to understand. When they had those manuscripts, remember New King James and King James, they put it in there. Their manuscripts had that last line in it, right? The best stuff they had in the day had it in there. In the last 400 years, we have discovered an incredible, I mean thousands and thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, many of them older than what they had in 1611, archaeological discoveries, uh, people digging around in the Middle East. They pull stuff up, and they look at it, and they date it based on all sorts of different things. Really, really smart people. And they look at these old manuscripts, and we start finding all these older manuscripts than what they had available in 1611. And we look at these older manuscripts, and the, the continuity between the manuscripts is amazing. The closeness that these scribes copied these suckers down is mind-blowing. One thing that's interesting is that when you come to the Lord's Prayer, the oldest manuscripts don't have it. It's not on the oldest ones. It just ends with, deliver us from evil. And then when you move forward in the timeline and you look at some newer manuscripts, 
it appears, but the oldest ones don't have it. The first time you find a phrase like this in history is in an ancient Christian book called the Didache. Didache. Sort of a, a collection of Christian teaching or doctrine. And this book dates to probably the late 2nd century, so the late 100s. So the Didache is about 100 years after the book of Revelation is written. And here's what's interesting. All of a sudden, none of the older manuscripts, and we have older manuscripts, none of the older manuscripts include it, but in the Didache, they're talking about the Lord's Prayer, and at the end of the Lord's Prayer in the Didache, you read these words. First time ever in history, thine is power and glory forever. What's missing from that? There's no kingdom in it. But it does, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, say, Thine is power and glory forever. Now let me just tell you something interesting, okay? This is written in Greek, ancient Greek, Koine Greek. In Koine Greek, they don't have quotation marks. There are no quotation marks. You just quote it, and educated people know you quoted it, okay? Or you say something like, it is written, and then you put it in there, and then you just move on. But there's no quotes, so in the Didache, you got this guy writing, and he's talking along. He's talking about prayer, different things. Then he just puts the Lord's Prayer in there, word for word. And then at the end of it, those words are tacked on at the end. Thine is power and glory forever. And what I would like to do is go back and ask the author, where would you like the quotes to be? Do you want the quotes to be the Lord's Prayer and stop at deliver us from evil, or are you saying to us that the quote should go to the end? And as we translate it, the honest answer is we don't really know exactly, but it shows up in the Didache, and it begins to show up in translations after this. Most scholars believe the final phrase was not originally spoken by Jesus and not originally written by Matthew. I know that makes some of you panic when I say that. Like, we have a liberal pastor. We have a pastor that is does not believe the Bible. I promise you don't, and I promise I do. And I just want to explain what I mean when I say scholars, okay? Most scholars. I do not, when I say most scholars, I'm not talking about weirdos. Uh, I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but I'm not talking about Duke Divinity School or Yale Divinity School or Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm not talking about the, the far theological left, okay? I'll give you a few examples of what I'm not talking about when I say most scholars believe this. How many of you have ever heard of something called the Jesus Seminar? I hope you haven't ever heard of this, but some of you, I knew Steve would raise his hand. Some of you have heard of this. Jesus Seminar. Okay, a, a bunch of scholars, they get together. They really have questions about the Bible, and they really have a hard time believing some of the things in the Bible. They just, they really struggle with some of it. So they get together. And look, there's smart people in here, but I'm just going to be real honest with you and tell you what it comes down to at the end of the day. It comes down to at the end of the day, they get together and they come up with this criteria and they vote. And the way they voted, at least initially, was they had like little colored balls that they would like throw in a thing and, and grade passages. So they would come to a verse, pick any verse in the Bible. Okay, any verse. And they would set it before the group, and they would say, okay, we're going to vote. In your professional opinion, do you give this a red, pink, gray, or black, this passage? And we're going to vote. 
Red, Jesus undoubtedly said it or something very like it. Pink, Jesus probably or might have said something like this. Gray, Jesus did not say this. But the, the idea, yeah, it's okay. Black, Jesus did not say this and it came along later. And they vote. And then after they vote, they sort of weigh the colors, average the colors out, whatever. And then they come out with scripture, Bible, that's color-coded. And it's color-coded for your advantage. So that as you read through it and you come to a red passage, you say, uh, that was Jesus. I mean, red letter, right? Makes sense. Red letter, really said it. But then you get to some of the black parts and what they want you to know is there is no way this was really in there in the beginning. And, and you're saying, what did they base it on? They ba- based it on their vote. Like they just looked at it and they voted. And they had some other reasons. I know they would think that's overly simplistic, but that's really in the end sort of what it boils down to is these guys and gals getting together and voting together. I, I don't think Jesus would have said something like that, so I'm going to give it a black. I, just, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm not talking about that kind of scholarship here, okay? When I say most scholars, I'm not talking about that. Uh, I'm not talking about somebody like Thomas Jefferson. You heard of the Jefferson Bible, Uh, life and sayings or life and something of Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's, that's what he did. He just went through his New Testament, and he saw a part that he didn't like, and he said, gone, I don't like that. Remove it. And the other stuff is okay, the stuff before it, the stuff after it, but I don't like this stuff. I, I don't believe uh, that miracles really happened. So he went through, and any time there was a miracle, cut it out, gone. Uh, I don't believe, you know, this would have happened, cut it out, gone. Just sort of based on personal whim or, or personal fancy. That's not the kind of scholarship I'm talking about. I'm talking about men and women who really believe that God inspired people to write the Scripture. They believe that it's true. They believe that it's inerrant. They believe that it's powerful. They believe that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. They believe that it's an authority over our lives, that we don't get to vote on what we like and what we don't like. I'm talking about scholars who would say the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient for our faith and for our practice and for our life and and for our spirituality. We don't need anything other than the Bible, right? All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable so that we could be equipped for every good work. There's not any good work that we need to do that the Bible doesn't equip us to do. It's true. It's inerrant. It's inspired. It's sufficient. It's authoritative. These guys and gals believe all of those things just like I think most of us do. But they look at these old ancient manuscripts and they say, I, how do you make sense of the fact that the oldest ones don't have it? I mean, they have everything else, but you get to this one line and it's not in there. So this is the kind of, of scholar that we're talking about, very conservative. And I'll just be honest with you. The kind of scholars that I'm talking about in the broader culture are viewed as Bible thumpers. I mean, they're viewed as Neanderthals. They're viewed as backwoods, primitive, poorly educated, simplistic goobers by Princeton and Yale and all Duke Divinity School and all these others, okay? But these are people who believe 
the scriptures. They're committed to the scriptures, but they look at this. And Dr. Moeller is an example of that. And here's his take on the last phrase. Christians in the early church added a doxology to the end of the prayer so as to give God the final word of praise in corporate settings. Doxology is a compound Greek word. Doxa means praise. Ology is sort of like word or study of or thought of. So it's the idea that we're going to give a word of praise. A, a ology or a logos doxa. Cram the words together. Doxology is a word of praise. And he's saying they added this on to give God uh, the final word. Now listen, I just threw a lot of stuff at you. And some of you, uh, some of you have heard that kind of stuff and it, you know, you're rolling with it. Some of you aren't, aren't quite so sure. Um, some of you are thinking, well, what else is up for grabs here? Like if we're chopping off the end of the Lord's Prayer, what else are we? What else is, is on the table? What else are we going to cut? And, and I, here's what I want to do. Rather than chase a thousand trails and lose focus on the Lord's Prayer itself, if you have questions, I just want to recommend a couple books to you. Okay, One is called How We Got the Bible. How many of you like to read books with pictures? Be honest. I like to read books with pictures. I'm not afraid to admit that. This book has awesome pictures, and it's in the library of the church right around the corner, and it's by a guy named Clinton Arnold, very conservative, legitimate Bible scholar, and he basically tells the story of how you in Odessa, Texas in 2019 ended up with a Bible in your hand in the language that you speak and can understand when all of these books... In that Bible, all 66 of them were written by men thousands of years ago who lived on the other side of the world, different culture, different time, different language. How did you end up with one of these in your hands? This is the story of that. And there's really, really cool pictures uh, that you can check out. And uh, pictures of the manuscripts, uh, pictures of old translations of the Bible, uh, descriptions of of how the copying went, all that kind of stuff. It's a cool book. Another one, if you really want to dig in, is called Can We Still Believe the Bible by a guy named Craig Blomberg. I can just spoil the book for you. Can we believe the Bible? Can we still believe the Bible? His answer is yes, we can still believe the Bible. But then he gives you uh, 200 and some pages and a whole bunch of footnotes on here's why. Here's all the questions that the liberal left wing of Christian scholarship is asking and they're, they're questioning the Bible and they're, they're doubting the Bible. You can trust the Bible and uh, two good resources if you want to check those out. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament and the Old Testament, ancient documents, they're all ancient documents, right? New Testament, Old Testament. The manuscript evidence is unparalleled in the history of the world for any other ancient document, any other ancient author. Scholars of antiquity get excited if they find five copies of a book or a writing or a treatise. If they have five copies, they think, this is fantastic. We can take these five. They were handwritten. I mean, this is a gold mine. For the New Testament alone, there are tens of thousands of manuscripts to look at and compare. Discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and the, the, the date of these manuscripts and these copies, the quality of these manuscripts and these copies, uh, how close they are to the original time 
that the, the originals were written. There is absolutely nothing in the entire world that compares to the mountain of evidence that we have for the New Testament. It is not like we're working off a little scrap of Isaiah here and a little piece of Jeremiah over here and we're just filling in the blanks with what they think they said. There is literally a mountain of evidence uh, that scholars look at to piece together what the Bible says and it is reliable and you can trust it. Okay, back to the Lord's Prayer because this is what we're really talking about. Should we use these words or should we not use them when we pray the prayer? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, we need to be careful about calling something Scripture that wasn't originally Scripture. I don't think anyone would disagree with that statement on the face of it. If something isn't Scripture, we shouldn't call it Scripture. I think we can all agree with that. I'm not saying to you that this was original or that it wasn't original. I'm giving you the, the facts, and I'm giving you some opinions, and you can make sense of, of what you want to do with this last phrase. I'm just saying to you, we should be very careful not to say God said something, the Bible says something, if someone else added it later. If that's the case, we should be careful about that. Secondly, I don't think there's any harm in saying these words. They are true and they are fitting. As a doxology, they are true and they are fitting. When we say, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, it's not like this is the only place in the Bible that expresses those ideas. Like That's thoroughly biblical. And I'll just give you a few examples here. Look at 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles 29. Old Testament, before the book of Psalms, 1 Chronicles 29. This is, David is given a last, a last uh, speech to the people. He's at the end of his life. They've collected an offering for the temple. David's not going to build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. But they've begun to collect, and the people have been generous, and David has been generous. And look at 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. It says, Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, all the people who gathered together for this offering for the temple. He blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Sound familiar? Like, I mean, just this same stuff. And you could look at this and you could say, ah, duh, Jesus said it. He's just quoting Second Chronicles. He pulled it right out of there. Or the other side could look at this and say, no, the early Christians took some of these ideas and added them on to the end. I just want you to see this is a, a biblical doxology. When we say yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, David said that a long time ago. Look at Romans 11. Just another example of a doxology, a word of praise. Romans 11. Uh, if you've studied the book of Romans, you know that the first 12 chapters hang together. That first 12 chapter section of Romans is all the doctrine and the theology and the 
uh, how does salvation work and uh, on a small scale and on a big scale. And at the end of 11, he's talked about all these great things God has done to save his people. Paul says this, it's a doxology at the end of Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable, inscrutable his ways Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. He says amen and then he moves on to the next section of the book. Meaning for all the stuff I've talked about, God deserves to be praised for all of these things. So that's another example uh, of a doxology. So in the scriptures... There's other examples of doxology. What about in the prayer itself? I want you to notice this. All the elements of the doxology are present in the Lord's Prayer. There's nothing in the last line that's not already been said in the prayer previously. I just want you to think about that for a second. If you you don't want to read the footnote and you want to end with evil, you don't lose any idea that you haven't already prayed about. Okay? And if you do want to pray it, you do want to include it, you like the ending, you're not gaining anything new. All of these ideas are already present in the prayer. Jesus talks about, in Matthew 6, he talks about in verse 10, God's kingdom. Well, in the doxology at the end, he talks about uh, God having a kingdom. In the doxology, he talks about God having power. Well, in the prayer, he assumes that God has power because he asks him to provide for him, and he asked God to protect him. He wouldn't ask for those things if he didn't think God was powerful enough to do it. So he's already assumed that idea. And then this idea of glory. Yours is the glory. The very first line is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May glory and praise and honor be given to your name. So in a real sense, whatever you think of the doxology, it's just sort of a summary of everything else that was already prayed in the prayer itself. Here's what I think is most important. Most important is the mindset that we have as we approach prayer. And the question is, are we willing to let Jesus teach us how to pray? What is your mindset when you come to God in prayer? Are you humble enough, am I humble enough to let Jesus tell us how to pray? Or do we think we have it all figured out? We don't need any pointers. If you look up the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, it comes on the heels of the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Please teach us. We have listened to you talk to the Father. And there's something different in the way that you talk to the Father and the way that we've always been taught to pray. And we are asking you to please teach us. And in Luke 11, on the heels of that request, Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew, the whole thing plays out a little bit differently. We don't hear about the disciples coming, but we do hear Jesus say this in Matthew 6, 9, Pray then like this. And we've talked about those verses. We talked about that doesn't mean only like this. It doesn't mean only repeat these words verbatim over and over and over again. But it certainly does mean that he's setting something before us that we need to learn and understand and think about. Do it this way. 
And the question for us when we come to the end of the prayer is, what is our mindset? Are we willing to let Jesus teach us how to pray? And so we're going to end with a quote about the prayer. Uh, I like this quote because it's a summary of the whole thing. It's a summary of everything we've talked about through this study. And I'm going to give it to you one sentence at a time so you can keep up and not lose your place. Okay, this is from Dr. Moeller's book. Uh, the Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. It's a great book. It's in our library if you want to read it. He says, this prayer, number one, is dangerous. This is a dangerous prayer. Overturning the kingdom of the principalities and powers of this world. So when we talked about kingdom, your kingdom come, one of the things we talked about is that prayer is a declaration of war on this kingdom. There can only be one king in the end. And if you're praying that God's kingdom would come, that means somebody else's kingdom has got to fall. Yours, kingdom of this world, kingdom of the devil, but there can only be one king. When you declare war on somebody, that's a dangerous thing. We talked last week about temptation, deliver us from evil, right? That there are evil spiritual forces, the principalities and the powers, Paul calls them that rule over and reign over this present darkness that we live under. In this prayer, you understand it's dangerous to start praying that God's kingdom would come because you're asking for a conflict of sorts. Secondly, this prayer is hopeful. It's hopeful. Expecting the kingdom of God to come in fullness with Christ on the throne. When we pray through the Lord's Prayer... There's not a single petition in the Lord's Prayer that you should pray and then say, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I mean, every one of them is rock solid. You pray it and you know, I've asked God to do it. He said he's going to do it. There's not any question all the way through it. And so you pray it with hope. You pray it, you could say, with confidence. This prayer, number three, is compassionate. It's compassionate teaching us to call God our Father and depend on Him for our every meal. There's an intimacy here and a dependence here where Jesus is teaching us to pray. He could have said, approach Him as Creator, approach Him as Sovereign, approach Him as Almighty, and He says, approach Him as Father because He cares about you. And when you come, don't be like the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles think they got to say a bunch of stuff For God to hear him. Jesus says, your father is not like that. He hears you. He's eager to hear you. He wants to be with you. He wants to bless you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to give you your daily bread. So we depend on him. This prayer is reverent. It's reverent. It shows us that nothing is more sacred than the name of God. Right out of the gate. Our father in heaven hallowed be your name. The first thing we ask for is that God's name would be hallowed and glorified. So there's a reverence to this prayer. It's not just coming and asking for stuff, but it's coming with the right mind frame and the right reverence. Lastly, this prayer is good news, reminding reminding each of us that God forgives sin and delivers us from the powers of darkness. There's good news. And every week we've talked about the gospel. There's gospel in this. When we as sinful people get to call God our Father, it's not because we've done anything. It's because Jesus has died for us 
so that we could be adopted into God's family. That's the gospel. We pray that God's name would be hallowed. We want God to receive the glory for our salvation, not us. When we pray his kingdom would come and his will would be done, we're saying, you have saved me and I am not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify you in the way that I live. Your kingdom and your will, not mine. Give me our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Forgive me my debts. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. Not, I'm going to pay it off. Not, well, this debt is not that bad. Just forgive it. Jesus died for me, and I'm trusting you to forgive me of this debt. All of these petitions relate us back to the good news of the gospel. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Just to end, I'm going to read it one more time, and you can follow along. And I am going to read the doxology, and then we'll put a bow on this series and call it good. Jesus says, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.